Hello, dear listener and specifically patron. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga and welcome to the last Alpha Bonus Bonus of the year where we discuss your questions and comments and criticisms of us, uh, which we've received over the past two months. Before we go any further, I just want to say, in case you've missed it, we have a listener survey out. It's the first time we do this. Uh, we want to know how you see the world, how it's changed over the past couple of years, as well as to understand how you see what we do uh, so that we can improve. So we've got another week or so to fill that out. So please uh, do so and uh, tell any friends who might be listeners and might not have filled it out either. Uh, if you want to have your say and also tell us, hey, you know, you're not talking about this thing or you haven't had this guest on. This is what you should do next year. Uh, so that's all for that. Um so uh, on with the, the matter at hand, I think before we go any further, I just wanted to comment that a lot of these questions obviously uh, refer to COVID um, because it's an endless source of discussion and uh, angst, uh, both about what side you're on, on the sort of lockdown debate about vaccines and so on. Um, and it's interesting to note, I just wanted to pull this out there, that it seems that at least on the British left, that there seems to be a move against lockdown finally, which is an interesting sort of change going on, at least if we can read it off the kind of recent things published by certain left intellectuals. Yeah, so um, it's an interesting one because <clears throat> I wouldn't say exactly that they're moving against lockdown, but I think what's prompted it is, well, I mean, I think there's lockdown weariness um, for sure, but they feel... Um, I think the people, the kind of left PMC, uh, feel that they are more able to articulate critical stances on lockdown and that they're legitimate to do this because um, some listeners might not have heard about it or seen it. But um, some leaks have been made of Tory government advisors, spokespeople, ministers and so on, who were caught having Christmas parties or socialising and breaking social distancing rules during the first lockdown. And so this has um, kind of fired up the left in Britain with charges of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. But at the same time, um, they feel more entitled to criticise lockdown and to kind of draw attention to its um, social depredations. Now that said, um, so, you know, there's been, I mean, there's been lots of criticism on social media or um, voicing of um, kind of weariness and um, drawing attention to its cost by people like Owen Jones, for instance. Richard Seymour has published a piece um, criticizing the kind of the cost of lockdown and the possibility that the Tories have instrumentalized it in order to roll out policies that are friendly to them and so on and so forth. What I think, though, I mean, I think also to put it in perspective, um, the way I see it essentially is a lot of what um, the constituency for people like Owen Jones and Richard Seymour, a lot of what they wanted um, has effectively been achieved. Right. So, I mean, they've got kind of they've re-altered working relations in their favor as far as um, uh, the Zoom kind of the Zoom attending classes go. They don't need to go into the office so much. Um, they're probably now kind of um, becoming exhausted by the commute from the bedroom to the office or from the bed to the desk. And so their perspective now is also shifting a bit and they don't feel the need to, um, I don't think they see the rationale or the logic. They feel that they've paid a heavy cost in terms of um, the last two lockdowns and um, they've effectively changed. Like I say, working life has changed in their favor to a, in a significant way. And so for that reason, I think they're more able to, their spokespeople like Owen Jones and Richard Seymour are more willing to draw attention to the costs of lockdown. And it means effectively, I think, that the support for it, given the fact that the PMC were the strongest supporters of lockdown, that the basis for it is fragmenting, 
and it's probably going to be more difficult to um, implement in future, given if the PMC are turning against it, which it seems that they are. Yeah, I mean, I think the the point about kind of hypocrisy uh, as a moral attack is not always particularly strong so like saying look these these leaks which you know we all knew that they they the uh political class of of this country of britain as well as many other countries political classes were not following the rules which they had um had told everybody else that they should follow so when you sort of see the when you hear about um epidemiologists breaking breaking lockdowns or or the political class having a wine and what a wine and pizza evening after a hard day's work outside in 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 the sun it's you know this is it was an open secret so that or at least i you know i I would have thought it was so that kind of like look they're not they're not they're not doing what they said we should all do is is quite a weak attack or is is quite a weak basis for for a political critique because it's like well you know maybe the things which they told us to do were wrong in the first place it's not the fact that they weren't following them it's that you know we should have we should have maybe thought whether these things were right in the first place rather than you know been been like oh you didn't do them so you're you're so bad and, and terrible and we 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 obeyed the rules and you cheated oh that's unfair well, but i think i think it's telling though that you know there's two responses you can have to the hypocrisy then and one is to say hey you should follow your own rules and the other is to say well you see these rules are stupid anyway um, we, and it's interesting, I think, at least notable that it's been the latter. And I mean, I'm not willing, especially to give Owen Jones the benefit of the doubt, um, because he's a complete opportunist. And I'm not willing to give Richard Seymour really the benefit of the doubt um, for a whole range of reasons. But I thought James Medway's piece, which I actually did read kind of more detailed, he published one of the New Statesman and one on his own blog, uh, which was pretty strongly condemnatory of, of lockdown. Now, I'm, I'm sure, you know, he's kind of changed his position on this, and that's allowed and, and indeed welcomed. Um, but I think I've always found him pretty, uh, at least, yeah, honest and open to debate, uh, if nothing else. And so I think we should at least take that, um, yeah, just take that as an interesting indication, I think, of things shifting. And as yeah, Phil said, that might uh, in, like um, presage a wider turn against lockdown and lo- lo- less tolerance for it. Um, the sense that, yeah, actually, we're still doing this two years on. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're and it's it's worth saying we're we're coming up to Christmas, so there's a lot a lot riding <laughs> for, for for a number of people on on whether we do have any further any further restrictions, and you know this this could um you know could be the straw that breaks breaks the camel's back and and means that you know we we don't end up having um another Christmas cancelled. We we will be able to uh to celebrate with our with our families and friends um all together potentially this christmas what a christmas it could be if that were well, to be the case to, i mean i suppose the question is though james medway was a strong supporter of lockdown and um it's true that he's up for the debate and i mean we had this exchange i had this exchange with him on twitter um back during the first lockdown i suppose the question is whether or not he's willing to account for um you know his own changed view of the matter and to his credit at least he's come out against um uh, vax mandates and sees how pernicious um, the idea of forced vaccination for frontline workers and so on would be. Um, but I think, I mean, it's got a ways to go yet before that constituency crumbles. And like I say, I think part of the reason is it's not just wariness, but also the fact that um, there's been a significant change of, uh, you know, a change in the balance of power in in the PMC workplace in favour of um, in favour of the PMC further in the sense that you will, you know, these working from home arrangements are going to be locked in over the long term. 
they can escape. Um, they can kind of sell up and escape overpriced um, inner inner cities and move out where um, to kind of outlying suburbs and um, on the edges of cities where they'll have greater purchasing power once they've sold up their inner kind of um, their inner city kind of uh, rabbit hutch apartments or whatever. Or indeed, if they've been renting up to now, they'll be able to move out and afford something and they won't be spending so much money on commuting. And so it seems to me like for a certain professional layer, um, the lockdown has not only been that costly in terms of the, you know, um, what they've, that they've never lost a paycheck and the rest of it, but also that they've benefited from working from home and the fact that those gains are going to be institutionalized for them. Right. Uh, let's move on with your questions because we're going to come back to this. There's actually a question specifically directed to the issue of the PMC and who's benefited. So uh, let's get on with it. Uh, we're going to start with the responses from the last Alpha Bonus Bonus, and then we're going to go from the most recent to the oldest one, if you're still following. Um, so from the last Alpha Bonus Bonus, uh, and again, if, if we missed your, your question or your comment, uh, sorry about that, but we have to kind of edit these down for, for brevity. Um, shout at us if you like. Um, so... Uh, the last Alpha Bonus Bonus, which was recorded in October, uh, it was number 220. Most of the discussion, unsurprisingly, was about COVID, so that's where we're going to start. Uh, Skip Muir says, the fetishization of the supposed expert class never ceases to amaze me. Are experts not capable of being wrong or having ulterior motives to pursue their own political agendas and financial benefit like the rest of us? The lockdowns, widely supported and championed by the expert class, has undeniably caused the deaths of an untold number of people through delayed treatments and the lack of consideration for any other illness other than COVID-19, which affects only a small fraction of the population in a severe way um, and only kills a small fraction of those. When will the pro-lockdown crowd acknowledge that their preferred policy has killed far many more people than COVID-19 has? Now, this has sparked a, a bit of debate. Um, so I'm going to continue on before we, before we kind of comment on these. Um, Maximum Ben says, in the US where restrictions have been minimal, COVID is the third leading cause of death behind cancer and heart disease. I'm not sure what deaths you're counting as being caused by lockdown, but it would take some pretty creative maths to make them even comparable. Uh, JP feeds in saying, in the US alone, 1% of the population is either dead or will have to make deal with, uh, will have to deal with the severe consequences associated with long COVID. Many of those second order impacts, opioid overdoses driven apart by social isolation and lockdowns, deaths due to people being unable to access medical care, and so on, uh, these are all real as well. The bigger issue in places like the US are due to capitalist imperatives like the profit maximization, political calculations, including the false choice between public health or the economy. Um, and it's these things that have uh, steamrolled and subordinated public health and prolonged the crisis. Experts in places like New Zealand, Cuba, and China, and elsewhere have employed different approaches, but have been able to operate from a different set of imperatives. Um, we can comment on this now, but I also want to take a comment from... Um, AM, who's a, an infectious diseases doctor in Melbourne, who we've had kind of a back and forth with uh, <laughs> over kind of, I guess, several now alpha bonus bonuses. Um, and it's a long comment, but I think it's worth reading out uh, large parts of it, especially as many of you liked the, the comment by AM. Um, so here goes. Based on your response to my alpha bonus episode recently, I think I've been misunderstood and we'll try again. I originally wrote to suggest that your discussions about COVID would have been more interesting if you'd been better informed about medical and healthcare impacts of the disease. And also if you recognize the variability in the policies grouped under the general banner of lockdown. You seem to interpret my comments as a defense of Australia's COVID policies, but that wasn't my point at all. I found most of your discussion about COVID both directionless and badly underinformed. 
Critiques of COVID policy responses from the left are clearly needed. Those critiques need to be informed by other things, some understanding of the natural history of the disease and so on, as well as how hospitals and healthcare systems work. Now, they're, they're uh, careful to say that they're not an expert themselves. They, they are, though, a, a junior hospital doctor working in infectious diseases, but they have a sense of what it's like to see people sick and die with COVID, um, and for as well as the consequence for large people, a large group of people during the pandemic. Um, the frank numbers, death tolls, long-term complications are also absent from our discussion. On the rare occasions death is acknowledged in your discussions, it's usually with some reference to overstated death tolls and so on. Quantifying excess death is complex, uh, but if you're willing to engage with it in good faith, uh, you know, you go ahead and do so, but it requires some kind of effort to understand how this data is collected and interpreted. Um, carrying on, many people have drawn parallels to road safety or, or drug policy to demonstrate that we make judgments about risk, freedom, and acceptable rates of morbidity in policy all the time. But these discussions can't be taken seriously if morbidity is disregarded entirely. Your critiques of COVID policy are impossibly vague. To repeat a point I made originally, Australia does not have a unified COVID policy, and using quote-unquote lockdown to refer to distinct policies in different states, let alone countries, is meaningless. Lockdown is not a single coherent policy type, and critiques of lockdown should be specific and detailed. Finally, I'm just finishing up here. Your comments about loss of respect for expertise might be correct, but it's a change you seem to actively support, and I think you're wrong to be gleeful about it. I'm relatively young, female, and frontline medical care is not especially glamorous, so I assure you I'm not inundated with waves of respectful deference from day to day. Giving advice and having it rejected some of the time is a normal part of the job. But in my experience, most people find it very difficult to make decisions about their health without guidance from someone with, without guidance from someone with training whom they trust. And being able to seek help from an expert is comforting to most people when they are unwell. Quote unquote, doing your own research without years of education is just as difficult as it sounds. And it's not a responsibility that everyone necessarily wants to take on for themselves or their loved ones. Um, there's one more comment, but I think we'll bring that in uh, at the end after we've just discussed these uh, comments. Yeah, so <laughs> go on, George. Yeah, quite quite a lot to pick up on on there. So I think the first thing that I would say is that I think um, uh, hopefully continuing to listen to the podcast, even while like sending quite quite a long and <laughs> critical message. That is actually, um, I think, worthy of, of, of some respect because it's like it's so much easier to uh, to turn off or unsubscribe or whatever um, from podcasts. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth engaging in, in with AM's comment in in good faith. I mean, I think I think that I mean, the point about the loss of respect for expertise, I don't think that I don't. Well, I certainly wouldn't. Um, entirely embrace that i think there are certain sorts of expertise or more importantly and there is a distinction certain sorts of authority particularly political authority which are um which i'm not gleeful about they're not existing like that is an that is an important characteristic of the response to covid i would say across pretty much every nation is that there's been a com there's been an you know a void and absence of political authority and this has been filled with experts um quote unquote experts or who have their own interests their own agendas i would agree with skitmer about this like their own like their own kind of um agendas so there is a you know it's more complicated than the fact that there is no uh you know that people have had too much of experts and we're all happy about that i mean i think that the thing about doing your own research i think this is you know this is this is something i would i would sort of defend the importance of 
I mean, it's it's necessary to to engage with these with with some scientific aspects of of what's going on, but more importantly, to engage with the political ones and to see, you know, to make your own judgment about what you think is are the risks of of living in a certain way and what you think are the are the costs and making that that judgment. And that hasn't been, I don't think there's been a a discussion about that. So people haven't been able to do their own research. It's been like, well, you better get on board with all of this extremely complicated science in order to have this discussion but that's that's not what i would mean by doing your own research it's not having a you know a master's degree in epidemiology it's being able to to sort of say well here are the different options here are the things which i the principles which i think are important which can't really be quantified and here's the you know the sort of things that i want to do but anyway i mean yeah phil you would get i don't know what you were going to say well, um, I suppose uh, the point about lockdown, you know, I'd pick up a few points from AM's comment. And again, like with George, I mean, I appreciate um, a listener taking the time to engage with us um, repeatedly and in such detail, particularly on a point of disagreement. So the point about lockdown being not being a unified policy in Australia, let alone kind of more generally, you know, is a good one. Um, and I think it is important to be attentive to attentive to the specific policies in different contexts. Um, and perhaps, you know, that's partly perhaps an artifact of living in, um, of uh, two of us at least being in the UK, where um, central, when government is so centralised compared to, say, the US or Australia, where you've had varying responses on um state, federal levels, and so on. Now, that said, I mean, you know, we've been, it is it is just a, a shorthand for talking about significant restrictions on public life and civil liberty of varying intensity and severity in different contexts. Um, and so, you know, if it's, uh, if we're guilty of it, I mean, uh, you know, um, I think we're not the only ones, but also it's difficult to talk in round without referring to lockdown and, uh, you know, accepting, like I say, that there have been significant costs, even if, um, you know, they've been, uh, they varied dramatically across countries. Um, on the issue of us being too blasé about the death toll and the suffering associated with COVID, um, if that's true, then, you know, I think um, then that is something for us to uh, not be blasé about. And I'm not sure I would agree with the earlier comment. I mean, I guess we'll see in the long run if there is, um, you know, the death toll. But I, I mean, I can't, I would struggle to apparently, I mean, according to the latest figures I've seen, the global death toll from COVID is 20 million. Um, I would struggle to imagine that the death toll from, say, def- delayed treatment um, for um, for people who've uh, not been able to access healthcare as a result of the pandemic, I'd struggle to imagine that will be greater than the COVID death toll. Um, but I've I think, at least speaking for myself, perhaps, if not for the podcast as a whole, we've always tried to draw attention to um, the fact of the intangible costs and not just seeking to kind of quantify the costs in terms of, um, you know, a crude trade-off between um, how many more people are going to die from being unable to access healthcare compared to the COVID death toll. And that, to you know, at the end of the day, that there are... Um, that the question of public freedom and civil liberties is not some is ultimately to a certain degree intangible, and or at least its costs and so on aren't uh, can't be measured purely in terms of um, death toll. So you know, I I'm happy to take the criticism if it's um, if AM and others think it's a just one that we've been too blasé about um, 
about uh, COVID um, suffering. And then, but I mean, I, you know, I don't think it would on balance change my views about um, the positions that we've staked out for the most part in this debate. Um, I've from, I mean, I think I've, as far as I can recall, I've been consistent in my feeling that um, the Swedish approach, notwithstanding the problems that Sweden had um, in their care homes, has on balance been, um, you know, better than others. Um, but again, and we've also said this, it's never been a simple case of one country offering a clear-cut paradigm, which is superior to all others. And then just finally on this point about um, expert expertise. I think the point AM says there, though, is the crucial one, right? She says that she's often been in the situation of offering advice to somebody who might necessarily take it um, as a doctor. And it's absolutely true, right, that uh, expertise, particularly medical expertise, is welcome and reassuring. And that while I agree with George about the need for your own research, there is no substitute, obviously, for specialized expertise either. But that's different from the claim for technocracy and political authority that is rooted in expertise. And so I think that's the difference. I mean, if AM, you know, if AM kind of gives expert views to patients and enabling them to make up their own minds, that's a very separate, um, you know, that's a very different example from the way in which public health um, and the contest over public health has played out over the last couple of years, because it's not been here is the evidence and draw your own conclusions, but rather trying to justify political decisions um, in the guise purely of public health without regard to the other political questions associated with, with lockdown. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's important all the way through this to be clear whether you're talking about experts uh, or the, the the kind of importance or lack of importance of knowledge in and of itself versus the political uses of expertise. And um, maybe we should all be more careful also in, when, when we're saying what exactly we're opposed to. Um, of course, there's probably many experts as well who uh, are not listened to by policymakers, right? There are dissenting opinions. Um, and we would then perhaps want to listen to those experts. So it's not that you're dismissing expertise, but that you're, um, you know, that there's always a, an element of political choice in, in who you listen to. Um, so on the one hand... Yeah, and uh, experts might not agree amongst themselves as that's well. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, just one final comment. I just I add kind of to, I think what Phil was saying is that it has always been a bugbear of mine throughout this pandemic. And it's been difficult to kind of get my head around the fact that how you feel about uh, you know, COVID measures and all the various restrictions that have come in is determined as well as by kind of class, function, uh, also age as well, uh, notably, but also by kind of where where you where you sit, right? In what country your experience is and which which jurisdiction you are, because there have been vastly different uh, responses, and I often find myself having disagreements when we're actually talking about different things, right? We're talking someone saying lockdown, and they mean one thing, and I mean a different thing. Um, the, what we're going to try to do in the next year is we're going to have, there's, I already know a, a couple of books out and, you know, been waiting for kind of more um, kind of all embracing studies of what's happened with COVID to come out. And now they are starting to come out and be published. So I'm look, looking forward next year to talking to some of the people. Uh, there's one book by a group of criminologists looking at the impacts of lockdown. Um, another one uh, looking at kind of COVID around the world. So uh, we're going to continue this and also try to be more scientific about uh, in, in trying to understand what happened, what motivated those decisions, what the impacts were of what was done and what was not done and so on. Um, 
Um, right. you, you can't you can't speak for all of us on that promise to be more scientific. If some of us <laughs> may may wish to reserve the right to be um, to to be cr- uh, vulgar or crudely yeah, well, political about you know, the, it, the culture of narcissism I, ultimately me, wins out. So it's it's you know wanting to say what you feel <laughs> uh, is more important than what is actually the, the case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's what I feel to be true. So that's <laughs> uh, well, we'll see in twenty twenty two. But yeah, no, I, um, yeah, I. Sorry, I feel like I undermined. What no, was I, I, I even I even opened up the map on excess mortality um, from our world and data, and the Economist has done good stuff on this too. But actually, let's not go into that now because it wouldn't be uh, a very serious way of dealing with it. One last comment, actually, from the last bonus bonus, uh, and this is a positive one. Samantha Clark says, "Thank you, Phil, for standing firm against vaccine mandates. The left, in particular, has been far too inclined to avoid the subject or even avoid thinking about it out of a fear of being associated with the QAnon Trump supporters, which is an entirely misleading representation of the vast and diverse group of people who are skeptical about the vaccines, the virus, and or corporate and governmental responses to it. I've always appreciated all three of you, and I continue to, but Phil, in particular, uh, you have a rare and special stubbornness around the issues you believe in. Thank you to all of you, uh, all three of us, uh, of being even willing to talk about this shit in a time when other people are being censored or even taken off Patreon and YouTube and so on for talking about it at all, whether or not what they're saying is true. Thank you, uh, Samantha. And uh, that's not a help. It's not a helpful comment, though. Praise the <laughs> <your> stubbornness. <laughs> no, that's this it. Is isn't. A, this isn't good. This isn't going to well, there's, there's comments anyway. also praising your puns. So they're encouraging all our worst tendencies. Um, guys, stop doing that. You should be more critical. Please, listeners, be more critical. Uh, right. Let's go uh, from the most recent to the oldest. Uh, episode 232, The Reading Club on uh, Eva Illouz. Um If you haven't listened to this, of course, that's for uh, $10 a month subscribers. Um, so you'll have to sign up to, to hear Uh, exactly what these comments refer to. Uh, Eli says, if we have today emotional capitalism, and this was the subject of the Reading Club book, if we have emotional capitalism with cynicism as a dominant capitalist ideology, then then the related legitimation narrative for political projects has got to be hysteria. Hysteria gets used regarding terrorism, war, COVID, climate change, Russian disinformation, fascism, whatever, to refuse the rationalization and quantification of what good any particular project does or how much evidence that project has in its favor. The commensurability of one's projects target goods with other goods the public prefers or enjoys. So uh, uh, basically the hysteria is in how we're simply not allowed to draw any lines and say, no, actually the number of lives saved by, lo- by a lockdown or the vac- of the vaccinated, for example, would simply not be worth it. I think this is kind of interesting. I think that's a useful addition to, to the sort of... Um, dominance of cynicism, uh, both popular cynicism and disbelief of popular narratives while continuing to participate um, in, in the way things are, uh, while also cynicism from, from the elite, um, but it's accompanied by this hysterical response. And I think that's right. It's something that we um, discuss in terms of knobs as well. Yeah, I'm not, in t- I'm not sure that's the only way it can go, though. So like, if cynicism, and this is what I lose, cites, um, I think Adorno's definition of cynicism is seeing through and obeying at the same time, then I don't know, there has to be some sort of attack on that seeing through. So you can't, you can't just follow things cynically. You have to, um, the way of legitimating various things has to maybe has to attack that seeing through aspect. So it's like, you can't be cynical and and cool and chill about it. And maybe this actually comes back to the same point about hysteria, but like, you need to feel something different. You need to, you need to kind of uh, effectively, 
uh, affectively support these things, not just feeling like, not just being like, oh, I'll go along with it because, you know, why, why not? Or because I don't have an alternative, but actually you need to, you need to live these, um, these, these problems. And maybe that's, maybe that is actually the same, you know, it circles back and that's, so you're, you're impelled, you're, uh, compelled or impelled to, to be, um, quite, uh, to take these things seriously. I guess that's it. Right. Like the end of the world, you've got to take that yeah. seriously. You yeah. can't be cynical about that because that's literally the end of the world. But I think that hysteria is also a reflection of growing cynicism, that it's a compensation for the fact that people don't buy into official narratives. There's a sense that people just don't believe what the message is that they're given. And as a consequence, um, there needs to ramp up the emotionalism of discourse. And this is not just from top down, but from from the sides, from from all kind of people competing uh, in the public sphere for 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 attention, <laughs> and it is probably more attention than than in terms of you know let's say party building, for example. Um, moving on to the next one, uh, just an interesting comment. Uh, this was George and mine, uh, George and Mines. I don't know if that's right. Uh, the discussion we had with uh, Catherine Liu, uh, hosted by the University of California, Irvine on uh, the PMC and about trauma narratives and so on. Uh, Red Schmoo says, the insidious effort to make everything about race and identity to undermine solidarity and class consciousness is reflected in this White House's policies. Just look at the wording of this Kamala Harris, uh, of Kamala Harris's recent maternal health bill. And think about it, regardless of income level, regardless of education level, black women, native women, women who live in rural areas are more likely to die or be left scared or scarred from an experience that should be safe and should be a joyful one. Uh, so Reg Shmoo comments, we're meant to believe that the Beyonce's of the world are just as endangered by racist doctors as poor, poor black women in the projects of the South Bronx. And uh, they go on to give several other examples of this of kind of discourse from um, government officials. And it is remarkable. Um, it, and it seems like you can always slice down to kind of different demographic groups to find the more oppressed one, which ignores the, <laughs> the overall um, bigger question of inequality and, and uh, you know, basic class division. Yeah, so maybe just a bit of a bit of uh, background as to what we were talking about with with Catherine, or or like how this 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 relates. Because um, yeah, I think it's I think it's just very striking how the and this is well, it's Catherine's argument or what we ended up talking about, which isn't really in her book, but was was the topic of the conversation about I guess the the weaponization of trauma or the trauma recognition complex. So like how the um, you move from, I guess, a sort of this idea of like a vulnerable subject to an already injured subject. So you have these kind of, I guess, ideas about how um, there's a, and because everybody's, um, you know, equally potentially able to, to suffer these ills, there's a, there's a sort of, there's an equal, there's a, a flattening or an equalizing and an atomizing effect at the same time. And that's, you know, complete, obviously completely deliberate because, regardless of income level and even that's obviously a euphemism for class but regardless of class so anything which has as your starting point like regardless of class it's it, of course then the response if somebody says well actually even you know takes that argument on its own terms and says well these things are structured by class it's like well no you're being you're being reductive you're being one of those kind of people who's who's not who's not um listening to to the lived experience of other people so it's a, it's obviously quite you know it's one of the dominant sort of um ways to 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 make political issues not about class but about other things um and you know it's very very successful um kind of <laughs> ruling class strategy at this point in time 
Okay, so uh, comments on uh, episode 229 to 30, which is the double episode with Doug Lane called Repetition Compulsion. This was a popular episode and it generated some interesting debate about uh, Gilad Atzmon, who was published by 0.1.0 and who's an anti-Semite. Um, you can read that if you want. Uh, I'm going to take up some other comments that have been made. One by Ben. Uh, I appreciate Phil's observation of branding and advertising as a powerful utopian vision because it, il it illustrates one of the challenges of the left in a straightforward manner. It's one of the many forces which challenge the left on its own territory. And I think leftists, speaking from my organizing experience, repeatedly fail to take those forces for what they are. If we are to promote a socialist, socialist utopian vision, which challenges the dynamic and shape-shifting capitalist utopian vision, being quote-unquote correct is not sufficient. We have to be strategic. Um, I'm going to read the next comment uh, by Caleb, which I thought was a great one. Um, I think what's lost in the conversation about branding is a discussion of the relationship between branding and identity formation. Branding is just the attempt to make a good into a, a, a physical good into an instrument of identity formation over and above the obvious use value of that good. You drink a beer to get drunk or to enjoy its taste, but you buy a craft beer to be cultured. You listen to podcasts to stay informed. You listen to Bunga to build your red-brown credentials. Hey, that is not true. Uh, barring meaningful differences between how different goods fulfill their obvious functions, what distinguishes a branded commodity from its generic counterpart is its role in identity formation. So the whole Adbusters anti-branding movement thing is so risible in that it represents a revolt against commodity culture and not a revolt against the commodity form. It's an attempt to purify or even redeem our relationship to commodities by rejecting the identity-forming surplus of branding rather than an attempt to alter social relations by abolishing the commodity form. Hence the yeah, notorious adbuster shoes. Yeah, brilliant point. Yeah, we all know identity is mediated by alterity. And kind of different. We construct our identities by rejecting or assimilating signifiers whose meanings are publicly shared, so social roles, belief systems, affects, etc. We are in part this constellation of signifiers. Branding just extends this aspect of self-fashioning to the marketplace. I feel like this makes it difficult to pinpoint what makes the consumption of brands so much more objectionable than similar forms of identity formation under capitalism. Indeed, you know, thinking about uh, being uh, whatever, non-binary as an identity versus being a fan of Nike sportswear. Well, one of the reasons is because it puts in a material, like uh, a material, um, <clears throat> I don't know, qualification, like you can't be a, 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 a an Apple guy unless you can afford the Apple stuff, uh, for example. But I did want to come back on this, um, on Phil's, uh, well, Phil's observation or supposedly Phil's observation of the um, of branding as a utopian vision. I think this comes from Benjamin, does it not, Philip? Um, this idea that the commodity does have a utopian aspect. Um, like every commodity in part is a use, well, not in part necessarily is a use value. That's one, that's one aspect of it. And so like the, the, uh, like an advert does show in some senses, the future of the human race in terms of this possibility of the satisfaction of needs and wants and desires and the historic creation of new ones. Um, because the, the commodities which are sold have that use value, they do satisfy um human wants and needs and desires and that's that's i think um i'm sure that you just i'm sure that you were you were go just about to to reference benjamin with this with this point but you just didn't um, no i, I don't read the same to attributing I don't your read sources. The, 
I don't read the same fancy thinkers that you do, so I'm afraid. So no, I wasn't aware. You don't of like that, experts, but, um... definitely. That's for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, I just read. I just read me, me, me good old fashioned Lenin, and after that, nah, too much. Just yeah. I mean, well, fair enough. You know, great, great point though. I mean, if you came, I came up with it off your out of your off your own steam, then that's um that's great stuff. Well, I was saying, but it was, and this was a point also made by, I think it was by Eli in the comments, but it was specifically um, sparked by car adverts um, prior to, you know, prior to movies at the cinema. And someone, I think it was Eli, it might have been somebody else in the comments made, um, in the feedback, made the point like, you know, there is no, there's no possibility of inhabiting the life that's portrayed. It's so kind of... Um, you know, it's almost like science fiction movies, the way um, the world that's portrayed in those ads. And that was what I was trying to get across. I mean, it, it genuinely is. It does feel like a kind of this incredibly alluring and exciting um, alternative world that's being portrayed, even if it's like, you know, in a seven minute ad or whatever it might be. No, I mean, to, to be fair, that is a good a good point. And not that ads are seven minutes, but that car adverts in at the cinema are one of the times when you actually do get to see the possibility like you're being sold a better future and it's like actually i'm not being guilt tripped into buying this thing it's like look if you just had this car look at the cool life that you would have um and that's pretty unusual but yeah i mean and, and for that for that reason i think you could you know you could you could say quite a lot about the changing bases on, on which um advertising appeals to us and i think that that aspect of utopia is pretty yeah pretty gone now so um, a couple of other comments. Mathieu Dube says, the left has no base. That's the problem. It's super interesting to hear academics and social media people discuss politics, but that's not internationalism. It's not, and it's not a revolutionary movement. It's baffling to hear Naomi Klein chatting with European intellectuals about, a, about climate change solutions, which will probably end up justifying austerity. Uh, that, that is the same as international working class solidarity. Uh, indeed, uh, Daniel. Sorry, L- just, just to, yeah. can I just jump in here? If somebody's selling you a selling you a solution or solutions, you should be very skeptical. <clears throat> it's the language of the uh, management consultant. Yeah. Um, d- delivery solutions. Uh, you know, logistic solutions, climate change solutions. So, yeah. yeah. No, you just need to take things up to the next level of contradictions rather than uh, permanently solve. Yeah, solve people problems. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, we've got a better problem to sell you. Yeah, that is it. Which actually takes us on to the next point, which is from Daniel L. Uh, Quote, unquote, introduce dialectical thinking to the Anglophone left, which I think Doug said during the the interview, or maybe it was one of us, I don't know. Uh, That's a great goal. Yeah, indeed. Um, There you go. Selling you better problems. Um, Finally, Eli uh, makes a comment about the thing that I had introduced about the kind of division of the left into progressives, populists, and Marxists. He says, I'm not sure I agree with dividing progressives from the populists on grounds of opportunism, because I had said that populists were defined by their opportunism. Uh, Both tendencies spend most of their time running after social movements ex post facto, trying to, quote unquote, radicalize them. I think that's true, though I guess in recent years, the, a lot of the more anti-establishment energy has been more uh, on, I guess, the amongst groups that, popula- that right populists are more willing to try to uh, capture than they are than, than progressives, with, I guess, the notable exception of Black Lives Matters and what happened in, in the summer of 2020 in the U.S., um, 
So I guess there's just been less raw material there in terms of like street movements for progressives to go after. Um, they've become more embattled and defensive of kind of technocracy rather than um, trying necessarily to, to capture people on the streets. Um, moving on to the next one. Uh, this was episode 228. It was a three articles where we discussed uh, popular revolts in Chile, in India, and uh, against COVID restrictions in Europe. Kasper Schaller says uh, Swiss voters approve their their government's relatively hands-off by European standards, their government's COVID policies in a referendum, um, which is uh, indeed interesting. And I mean, it does it does show that there is some you know popular support for this, even when there's it's directly put to a vote as in kind of under the rules of Swiss direct democracy. Um, Andrew Mountford points out that opposition to lockdown. Uh, or authoritarian biosecurity policies in the UK has been sporadic and lacking clear leadership, partly because the left has scorned taking up the mantle, but also because the government, the media, and quote-unquote the science have gone hard on the line that our own limited freedoms are predicated on the behavior of the unvaccinated, classic divide and rule, which has associated blame for lockdowns not on governments and scientists, but on the irresponsibility of individuals who have failed to follow the guidance and or the rules." Uh, Eli adds to that, uh, it's not just divide and rule, but rule by constantly moving the goalposts and scientific confusions and conflations. I think uh, we can all agree with that. Uh, Jennifer Baldwin points out that I get the impression that none of you seem to know much about the strange conspiracy theorists demonstrating throughout the world. Australia and Guadeloupe are particularly impressive. I have to say I'm not familiar with uh, what's going on in, in Guadeloupe. Um, but uh, she says that many wish to defend their bodily autonomy and the Nuremberg Code. Many do not believe that regulatory bodies in science and medicine can function adequately when they have been captured by pharmaceutical companies. Many do not believe the vaccines being rolled out are either safe or effective. Many think that what is underway is not a laudable desire to fight a respiratory virus, but a manic desire to keep everyone hooked up to, the digital, to a digital platform that is the Green Pass in order that the central bankers can roll out a digital currency. The dollar is at 0% and 7 trillion has been printed in the last 12 months alone. Well, I think in some ways the the proof of the the proof is in the in the pudding, but when he gets the pudding, you don't want to eat it. In that there's like I think the people who have been um saying consistently, like, oh, you know, what's gonna happen is you're gonna have to have this um the the lockdown will only be relieved when you have a vaccine and then the vaccine, you know, won't won't be as effective as as people said so we're gonna to have to have another lockdown and then we're gonna to have to have a third you know or fourth or whatever booster shot and it's all like and, and the logic of this is leading towards a kind of um a digital identity pass which in which health and, and other sorts of information are all tied together it's like anybody who's been making that argument has pretty consistently been proved been proved right um but the you know the as i said the ultimate proof in that is is only when we get there and um you know, we all have our digital currency, but I mean, on the, on the, to speak on, on in favor of that, I mean, how convenient will that be? Like, you'll just be able to go around and, you know, yeah, you won't have any civil liberties, but on the other hand, you'll be able to just like to um, show your identity and to, to kind of show your vaccination status, like really easily. And that will save a lot of, a lot of hassle and a lot of, um, a lot of confusion. Yeah, I, I think, you know, again, these issues, issues are so vexed and it, often they all get uh, jumbled into one. But then at, this, at the same time, trying to uh, d 
divide up the discussion into specific lockdown restrictions, the vaccine, the mask wearing, et cetera, et cetera, uh, border closures and whatnot ends up sometimes missing the wood for the trees as well. Um, because on any one of those issues, you could, you know, you could reasonably argue for them, uh, but then you miss out the wider swathe of, of what's going on. And, you know, I think a lot of the, it comes down to, to a certain extent, whether you see, whether you follow this chain of reasoning that it's ultimately driven by an aim uh, to move people to this digital platform and whether that's based on uh, the state of capitalism effectively and the growing mountain of debt, the need to keep interest rates low, and then at the same time, the, the rising inflation and the need for deflationary policies, which the lockdown do. I'm not sold on that. Um, I think it's worth discussing though. Um, but I think it, it does show that if you're not signed up to that whole argument, which is not a conspiracy theory, but it's a, it, it is a theory about what is going on. If you don't buy into that theory, then it becomes quite, um, then, the, then you feel like the whole thing needs to be rejected in toto. So it's, again, I, I guess I'm just pointing out that this uh, argument is, is hard to have by just kind of swiftly resolving that is A or it is B. Uh, so moving on to another question. John O'Riordan, who uh, actually did these short videos uh, for us to accompany the OK Boonger Generation series. Uh, if you've seen them out on social media, I think they're really cool. I just want to say, take the opportunity to say thank you uh, once again and credit John O'Riordan for, for putting those out there. Um, he says, Alex exactly described my trajectory from Remainer to Lever, and I think listening to my rants has convinced a few people I know too. The fact is, I didn't know much about the EU until Brexit. Neither did my friends. I think this is true of a huge chunk of Remainers. We were the quote-unquote low-information voters guided by mushy feelings of being European. Watching the ruling class freak out and destroy democratic convention to stop this spurned on my investigation into what the EU is. I now bloody love Brexit, lol. Uh, I know this is all anecdotal, but I doubt I'm alone. Um, I don't think so either. I think that was my I mean, I, I said... I feel I, I feel love for John O'Rourden when I, when I read that message. <laughs> yeah, I said that I hadn't met anybody like that. And I haven't met John, so... But that's because you're correct. too much in your in your elite PMC bubble, so you don't meet other exactly. people. Exactly. Even yeah. Not even meet any other people working from home, yeah. commuting from bedroom to desk. Yeah. Um, so uh, continuing the... Or I guess returning to the um, COVID discussion, this is a, a different point of view. Uh, Socialistan says, I don't necessarily think COVID certificates and vaccine passports are a good idea, but you're wrong to call them undemocratic. On the contrary, it's an example of the vaccinated majority imposing its will on the unvaccinated minority. It also looks like they enjoy fairly wide support where they've been introduced. Switzerland even have a, had a referendum that approved uh, its COVID certificate, as I already mentioned, as uh, Casper Schaller said. I think this makes it relatively easy for governments to dismiss the protesters as fringe weirdos. And the fact that they come from both the left and the right probably makes it easier for mainstream right-wingers to do so. Don't forget that the governments of the Netherlands and Austria that we mentioned, that is to say that there were big that there were protests against vaccine passports in those two countries, the governments of those two countries are right wing. Um, you can't divide it up politically. Sweden is liberal and has a center left government and had the most kind of liberal COVID policies. Um, maybe, Socialisten says, maybe we should be more worried about the lockdown right. Much of the support for COVID certificates and even mandatory vaccination comes from people with right-wing views. The rhetoric is reminiscent of what you see with crime, like it's time to take the gloves off when dealing with the unvaccinated. Um, so, you know, suggesting that it's kind of a more, something more amenable to right-wing framings. 
here yeah, in Norway. You should, keep the, you should keep the gloves on when dealing with the unvaccinated and the face mask and the hand gel. Uh, uh, here in Norway, over the course of the last month, the right wing, in particularly the recent out-of-power Conservative Party, has been criticizing the newly elected center-left government for not in- introducing enough restrictive measures. So it's wrong to discuss it as, uh, you know, the kind of PMC being pro-lockdown, as we actually on this podcast have repeatedly done. Um, some sections of the PMC have been hardest hit, uh, for example, performing arts and as well as bar owners and bar people who attend bars, go to bars and so on, um, where the where the where these are spaces where the left is overrepresented. I mean, I think they're specifically referring to performing arts. Left-wing and liberal voters tend to be younger and are more likely to live in small apartments in the large cities that have been the most negatively affected by the shutdowns. On the flip side, older right-wing voters with large houses in the suburbs have been less negatively affected by the shutdowns. They're also more likely to work in manufacturing or other industries where COVID has had less of a negative impact. It's such a common mistake uh, to forget that the PMC, particularly in the private sector, always has been the core electorate of right-wing parties and that this will still to a large extent remain the case. I think that's, I think like on the one hand, um, the pointing, the point about kind of different governments of different stripes implementing these COVID policies just shows how much COVID has scrambled a lot of left-right coordinates. Um, and so it's not even very useful, I think, not le- to talk about left and right governments, not least because there often very isn't very much to split what we refer to as a central left government in Europe and versus a right-wing one. Um, with, this is, so, all, but this I would- is, yeah. Well, I would agree with that. I mean, I think the, you know, it's a point that's well made. Um, And if we've been, you know, if we've been uh, suggesting that it's only the left that support lockdown, um, then that, you know, that's been remiss of us. But I would say um, on the point about it being undemocratic, notwithstanding the referendum for the COVID pass in Switzerland, it seems to me that it is fundamentally undemocratic. So um, in two respects, I mean, so, you know, given the fact it's, um, governments effectively in uh, stay in conditions of what are more or less emergency rule. So that has to be kind of factored into the assessment. The degree of popular opposition um, from civil society is, you know, significant. And in many ways, I think also unarticulated. But the main point with respect to this, um, you know, the despite the fact that they are claiming kind of formal democratic authority to um, punish or uh, coerce or nudge or whatever it might be, the unvaccinated. The issue, is, the reason that makes it undemocratic isn't the fact that it's um, necessarily a government that might have majority support, but that it is effectively um, depriving uh, the capacity of citizens to access public life. And so in that, in that sense, it is hollowing out um, one of you know, the basis for uh, civic life to enable democratic participation. That is that I think you know, the, the risk um, in terms of lockdown in general, but also specifically with the COVID pass and the idea that you need to show your papers um, and to show that you're healthy in order to access public space or to participate um, in various kinds of public activities or to enjoy unrestricted freedom, civil liberties, um, that is profoundly undemocratic, irrespective of whether or not any particular government has majority support for the initiative. And so I think that is where the battle has to be fought in terms of the legitimacy of these measures. And that has to be clear, I think, for those opposed to these measures as well. Yeah, I think it's important not to take uh, va- getting the vaccine as support for um 
vaccine passports because they're not the you know they're not the same thing you know as you as you basically put it phil it's a it's um um a restriction in some people's access to to areas of civic life which are important for for democracy and I, but just on this point about pmc as pro lockdown i think you know the, the pmc is not necessarily a uniform political actor i think though i think it does actually have a very high degree of um for, for a variety of reasons some of them material some of them to do with the way that it communicates and and um kind of various moral and cultural outlooks it does have a very high degree of of uh, coherence as a as a as a, a uniform actor and i would say that that has been the group in many many cases that has been most actively in favor of lockdown but it's not necessarily the group that has been most material most directly materially benefited like if we say that lockdowns and again to kind of use this kind of crude single term for for a, a wide variety of measures um but if it's if it's essentially social demobilization of various different sorts um then this like you know who does this policy most benefit the, the people who are most vulnerable or most at risk of that particular um kind of <clears throat> disease and that's that's older people and that's not necessarily you know just PMC well there's not there's not an exact uh, equivalence there so I think it has to be explained by the fact that this is a group in society who for moral cultural reasons and particularly distancing themselves from working class people um, were particularly keen to enforce um, this kind of seeming social solidarity behind uh, lockdown measures that kind of like putting the individual um, beneath society so there's quite a strong moral case there so yeah I mean it's, I would, it's a good yeah. comment though I would add to that because I think I'm not sure it's a clear cut, you know, it's not purely about kind of um, purely about immediate benefit. I mean, if I think about, say, the role that teaching unions and academic, the academic union in the UK have played in terms of lockdown, you know, if you'd said that before lockdown, that um, swathes of the professional classes represented by some of the largest and most powerful white collar unions in the world would um, strongly argue for uh, conditions and government restrictions and policies that would restrict their, you know, kind of undermine the rationale for their love role, which is to say being face-to-face, being present on campus or in school um, with young people, engaging them socially as part of the educational process. I, you know, I think many people would have been surprised by the idea that that, um, so many would have ended up supporting such measures. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I think I think it's I think what you've it, what you is failed to understand is that academics are wicked smart. And so they don't play by the same rules of not undermining the fundamental conditions of your profession that other kind of more terre a terre minor, kind of more lowly mortals might. Well, that is possible. I might have under, you know, I might have underestimated the 12 dimensional chess game that um, academic and teaching unions in the UK at least have been playing. But um, so, I mean, I'm not, you know, that I say, like I say, sway, I mean, I think certain sections of the PMC office workers, um, like I say, who will have, who have uh, fundamentally altered working arrangements in their favor, um, I think over the last few years and have managed to kind of benefit from, to demonstrate, uh, you know, the, the kind of capacity of the new communication technology that means that they can alter their working lives. Um, but at the same time, it's not so clear cut as um, the, that there are very clearly kind of, there's been strong support for lockdown in professions which clearly are going to um, suffer from lockdown as a result. 
Um, yeah, I don't say so, I don't I don't buy the idea that there's a kind of direct material benefit. I mean, they might relatively lose less in many cases, right? So that um, you know, yeah, you get service, people bring you stuff while you're working from home, but they probably don't, I don't know. Some people obviously have just been totally fine with the new arrangement, but um, you know, no, it, but what I'm what I but what I I raised this point in relation to the fact that um the kind of the lockdown left is splintering in the UK at least, right? And it seems to me part of the reason that there is um, that lockdown doesn't seem to be so, doesn't seem to have the support is at least partly because the new working arrangements have been locked in, right? Literally. I, no, I, I, I take that point. But of course, the lock, the pro-lockdown left is only a tiny fraction of the PMC. So, you know, given that there's loads well, of people it's, who are But it's there, I mean, I, mean, I think... They're they're a tiny fraction numerically, but I think an important um, you know they're the mouthpieces of a significant swathe of um, of professional middle class people in the UK. All I wanted to say, I mean, all I wanted to say with respect to this is that it's um, you know the kind of the perversity of some of these policies and the need. I think it can't be explained. I mean, so I'm agreeing with you, Alex. I don't think it can be purely explained in terms of material benefit. Because if that were the case, then we wouldn't have seen the kinds of the support for lockdown that came from um, from PMC unions, right? So I think that has to be explained by other factors, and one of them I think is just um, the retreat from any kind of um, public commitment, public life, civic engagement, yeah. and a public ethos. And that I think is um, you know the only way to account for that is in terms of just how deeply embedded neoliberalism is. Um, particularly within the lockdown left, and those who think of themselves as leftists have demonstrated and, and, and that it's they also, have and, no commitment to public life. Yeah, I think it's also what I was going to get at is the irrationalism of it, which is that it is an it is evidence of successfully played politics of fear, and it's fear around health issues, which. Um, if you're better off, you're more sensitive to. I mean, the rich in particular love to talk about, uh, you know, their health, their exercise regime and whatever. And so to protect themselves from COVID is obviously takes on kind of this paramount importance. Whereas if you're exposed to much greater risks in your daily life, especially in your working life, the, you know, COVID itself is, might not appear as such a, such a big deal. And so, uh, yeah, and, and, and then the there's, and then there's and then the, the middle classes is a big part of it for sure. And then there's the other thing, which I think is a point I've made before, which is this, um, uh, the appeal of emergency politics, to, which which it's not just appeals to the kind of liberal PMCs, but appeals to populists as well, albeit in different forms. Uh, right populists like to do it on immigration, shut all the borders now, this is an emergency, or, you know, shut down society, this is an emergency, this is a health emergency. And it seems that the only way that people are able to get past the intractability of contemporary politics and the breakdown of neoliberalism is through emergency politics. And this applies both to kind of liberal PMC as, as it does to kind of right populist petty bourgeois or whatever. So to take uh, two last points just on this really quickly, Paul Brewer uh, says, speaking of an edifying, I find the Mundus Contra, contra Georgium, that's uh, the world against George in Latin, uh, I find the Mundus Contra Georgium bickering increasingly unedifying. Please stop. And uh, Bernhard Pickle, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him Pickle because I mispronounced it once. So Mr. Pickle says, can you please do a bonus episode, which is just George's collected puns, uh, which I think would be uh, like so decontextualized as to be uh, absurdist. Don't, in, don't encourage him. Don't encourage, don't encourage uh, the punster. No, I mean, all I would say to Paul, to Paul Brewer is that sometimes the toughest battles are given to the strongest soldiers. So, you know, thanks for having my back, but 
I will, I will um, persist. Um, and I don't think we'll ever do a, do a, 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 a clip episode. I mean, that, you know, you, you can't, you can't do those. You just, you, they need to be um, sprinkled like seasoning. If you were just to eat a, like a whole bowl of salt, wouldn't be good, but food without salt, where's the flavor? There you go. Special okay. sauce. Yeah. And the, M- the MSG of humor, uh, George. Moore. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So yeah. episode 2260, where we discussed the Jacobin survey, I'm just going to run through these. I don't know if we want to come back on them so much, but you know, guys jump in if you want to. Uh, this was the Jacobin survey of working class voters. Um, S says, yet another elaborate attempt by a faction of PMC aspirants to prove that the working class is on their side. This type of research is farcical, cope, bordering on delusion. If Bernie Sanders-style rhetoric was so popular, why has he only been able to win elections in the second least populous state, Vermont? If the working class are so xenophilic, why did they vote for Trump in 2016? Here's the reality, boys. Jacobin readers and Alpha Bunga Bunga listeners are not working class, nor are their interests aligned with those of the working class. The sooner the anti-woke bourgeois left realizes, the better. Mm. Uh, Jennifer Baldwin says working wait, class. Wait, wait, wait. Let's. Uh, I mean, surely, like, um, well, it's only to say. I mean, I don't think we've uh, that at least this podcast of the anti-woke bourgeois left. I mean, I don't think we hope we at least I'd like to think we struggle to avoid being the bourgeois left, insofar as we're criticizing what I think is. I mean, you know, what is the politics of the bourgeois left sociologically? Um, you know, sociologically, no doubt, part of the bourgeois left. Um, but I don't think we've under any illusions that um, we're uh, successful, you know, that we have great kind of uh, political heft with respect to working class politics. But that's only to say that working class politics doesn't exist, right? There is no organized yeah. working class politics in major Western, um, in the major Western states. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Um, and, and also the fact that the... Uh, working class are so xenophilic, why did they vote for Trump? I mean, the working class didn't vote en masse for Trump either. You know, I mean, that's that's to recapitulate Phil's point. Um, it's not like there is a huge amount of working class agency. Many, A lot of people, huge ways that the working class don't vote in the United States, for example. Uh, Jennifer Baldwin says, working class people do not need polls or surveys to tell them they are not racist or sexist or homophobic, but clearly left-wing journals do. Perhaps that's the problem. Brexit and Trump's election is very relevant in that it warned the central bankers to get on either to get on with either the rollout of a digital currency. Sorry, I need to reread that. Uh, It warned the central bankers to get on with the rollout of the digital currency and that the prime opposition to this would be the home of the dollar and the pound. Thankfully, a very scary flu-like illness came along to help them remove democracy. Jonas Kiratze says, the only point of this research is to convince one, that is the old section of the Democratic Party, that another section, the young section of the Democratic Party is right about marketing. It has nothing to do with policy. And finally, Nicholas Kiersey says, having thrashed Jacobin for asking what people want, Bunga now finally asks what the people want, referring to our survey. Yes, uh, very droll. I don't Nicholas. think. Yeah, I don't think our, our listeners are people. Um, but no, I think it's 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 worth, like I think S's comment and Jennifer's and actually Jonas's as well. They were, all, you know, it's all it all pretty much on on the money. I think we made some of these some of these criticisms of this of this approach. I mean, it's you know, it is part of the way of doing. Uh, doing politics these days you have to have a uh, within intra-organizational battles you have to have your evidence and you have to have your um you know your reasons for for why you take this particular line i mean and it's you know that reflects in large part the the growing or the the massive distance between the supposed 
um, political organs of the working class and working class people. Like that distance is now so far that it's come back and th these two are now obviously actively opposed. So, yeah, I mean, that's there is a real there is a real material distance between political elites and, and working class people that, you know, some, you know, I think some readers of, of, of some political sociology would be quite staggered and like, whoa, couldn't, couldn't believe this happened. I mean, go back to Brexit and Trump, like these things were uh, incomprehensible, like two, uh, <laughs> two votes with like two different outcomes. And in both cases, one of the two outcomes was like impossible to comprehend for large swathes of people in, in the Democratic Party and the Labour Party in the UK, like people who um, would, would put themselves as kind of politics experts and, and, and presumably kind of tapped into some of these institutions. So, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like there is it, it shouldn't be a surprise, I think, if you've been following the last few years of politics that this sort of thing i.e. The, you know the, the, the jacobin survey has real like has a real place within the current ways of doing politics okay so our episode uh, number 225 where we discussed with carl sharrow lebanese sectarianism and western multiculturalism this was very popular now we should get carl on more often really uh richard mishuk who lives in northern ireland uh, comments that uh, that in Northern Ireland, the segment of the population that does not identify with either the unionist or the Republican camp is growing. And I think for these folk, the settlement looks more and more antiquated. And yet old divisions persist. And it's far from clear how we move to something better without endangering the hard won peace. Um, yeah, I think that'll be one that'll be interesting to keep an eye on um, in, in coming years. Uh, episode 224, it was the three articles where we did discuss labor revolts. Um, there was lots of discussion on this um, in the comments. I won't go through all of it, um, but we will be doing more on labor uh, revolts next year for sure. Um, and labor militancy. Um, Gabo Golf comments that rising wages could increase productivity as a second order effect as places invest in technology to save in labor costs. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not convinced how long term this increase in, in in wages will be, and how long the lasting these labor shortages will be. But uh, again, we'll discuss this more in the future. Um, there was some discussion about the fact that because we I introduced the three articles that time as one on the left liberal, one center liberal, and one right liberal, um, and that somehow there was an analogy between that and. Phil, myself, and George's respective political positioning. Um, ben speculates that the right lib is me, center lib is George, and left lib is Phil. Um, whereas Eli thinks that Phil is the most righty of the lot, and that and Tom L concurs, which should be in reverse order. Um, ben calls them all liberals. They, everyone in the comments. Um, I think the one thing we conclude because we're not sure if Alex is left liberal or right liberal and Phil vice versa. But I think that there does seem to be an emerging consensus that George is definitely centrist liberal. Um, so that's yeah. good. We, we've learned something. No, two, this. two points on this one be, you know, as a centrist liberal, I support consensus. And if that's what's developing, then that, that makes sense. Secondly, cent center liberal is the best liberal is the most liberal. The only liberal that you can actually trust uh, is a classic liberal who, who believes in freedom of speech and, and uh, rights and all that sort of, uh, you know. Yeah, whereas the other ones might be pinko, might be pinkos or or fascists. So you know. So, and I would say that Ben's comment, I think, hits the nail on the head. That, and, but just purely by calling Phil a left liberal, I think that's that's, I've I've long sus suspected, and I think if it's increasingly coming through, um, then that's good. To, that's good. Good to hear. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we could we could rebrand as a more a more actively liberal podcast. Yeah, you know. actively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Maybe yeah. we might get, we might not get more, li- we might get more listeners or we might just get a better class of mm. listeners. Or we could just be more, more, you know, more passively liberal um, where we just get fucked. So uh, anyway, um, episode 222 and 223, which is a double episode on nuclear power with Emmett Penny. This has provoked a lot of discussion. Uh, many of you felt that Emmett was too propagandistic. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these, but um so Nathan Segrist thought that the question of nuclear waste was completely sidelined, um, that, uh, you know, it was wrong to say that no one died in Harrisburg. Emmett actually replied in, in the comment saying that, no, indeed, no one did. Um, but in, in all, they found that the episode was not very convincing. It failed to adequately, adequately address criticism and worrying and worries regarding nuclear and that the arguments for nuclear are so scattered with hyperbole that it is hard to appreciate some of the valid points underneath. Adult concurred, saying this guest seems more interested in advocacy than any actual engagement with the political and technological questions of nuclear energy. Um, Also, there was no coverage of what I find to be the most interesting challenge of nuclear energy. Every nuclear disaster is caused by corruption and incompetency, something like inevitable in any project which is so capital intensive that can't be waved away as simply quote unquote mistakes when it is endemic to the model. Steve Bobrick says, I'm not anti-nuclear. The safety argument is obviously bogus. That is to say, you know, deaths from coal must run into the millions, much more than nuclear. Although multiply the number of plants by 100 and put them in vulnerable, under-resourced places. And, you know, we might see a few more meltdowns, especially as coastlines may be uninhabitable in 50 years' time. So this is Steve taking issue with the idea of just rolling out nuclear everywhere. Um, Nick Thompson says, uh, terrifying and also really good episode. Uh, read about going to Fuku- he read about someone going to Fukushima Prefecture with a pancake frisker to take radioactivity readings, and they were lower there than where they live in Sac- in Sacramento, California. Uh, SLE 1990 just says based and Promethean pilled bunga boys fire up that fission. Yeah, fuck yeah. Um, Tom L uh, asks a question: In the Alpha Bunga Bunga vision of socialism, would there still be economic growth and therefore an ever growing demand for energy, nuclear or otherwise? Um, I'm going to just deal with that last question there um, rather than uh, discuss the nuclear question specifically, which is that I think on the one, firstly, we have to separate economic growth from demand for energy, because I think the more humanity collectively does, um, it has more demand for energy. So I, I don't, I think you could foresee, you know, ever more complex civilization, indeed a communist civilization, um, demanding ever more, having ever greater requirements for energy, and hopefully there'd be nuclear fusion or whatever by that point, um, which is separate, I think, from the question of economic growth. And I think probably under, if, you know, if there were a global revolution tomorrow, would there still be economic growth? Um, the, the question, I think, is incorrect because no, economic the, growth is what? raised. Yes, no, because economic growth it is... What do you mean? But what is economic growth? GDP figures. You dig up a hole and fill it back up again, and that adds Not, GDP. No, no, but I mean economic growth. Uh, yeah, in that's, the sense no, of... that's exactly what's going to happen. Is that, like the, that's the only reason you make a revolution so that you can just fucking dig a load of holes and fill them in, and that's the and, you know. <laughs> but, the, but there would be a lot more material progress, especially in the you know for, for the vast majority of the Earth's planet living in poorer countries. So yes, there would be. So uh, the, I mean, isn't by it definition quite, then right? Isn't it quite an easy answer? Like yeah. yes. The answer is yes to that question. The answer is yes. Um, there, we there we are. We have we don't have consensus, but we have a majority vote. And maybe the the answer to that is that we don't have an alpha bung bung division of um, no. But the problem the problem if you if you if you if you abolish money and you don't have you, production isn't uh, directed towards producing commodities for like and producing value, then it doesn't make no, sense about economic think, growth. I don't think the I don't think this was uh, you know the, I don't think the listeners' comment was intended as a critique of. Um, 
GDP measures of economic growth. It was a general point about economic expansion in terms of um, productive forces, technology, uh, public infrastructure, expanded energy supply, housing, you know. Then, yeah, there'd be, geo, there'd be geoengineering under socialism. Yes. Yeah, there would be, by definition, there would be, there sh- needs to be, I mean, at least under the classical kind of Marxist conception of it, there needs to be expanded economic capacity um, in order to overturn uh, the narrow horizon of, to go beyond the narrow horizon of bourgeois right. It's like the, um, the, the film geostorm i don't know if i've talked about it on the podcast before but i'm pretty sure i've talked to two of you about it previously like yeah that sort of geoengineering i really i i that was like the film that got the worst critical reviews that i actually thought was kind of was kind of good um the idea is i obviously trust big, the reviews like, rather than you because i still haven't watched it <laughs> oh okay well i won't give anything away but there's a big like um uh like i guess it's like a, a net around the whole world filled with like um uh like solar panels and everything and it you know it 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 regulates the temperature and has loads of energy and blah 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 and it's really good um and nothing happens okay Um, good story (laughs) (laughs) okay so we're going to leave this here thank you everyone so much for commenting uh including and perhaps especially the critical ones um because we like that sort of thing uh we'll continue to engage with them with these sorts of episodes next year. Um, so keep that coming. Also, if you want to let us know what you think, as I say, we're doing the survey. So, if, you know, you have about a week. If you want to fill that out, that would be great. Um, and that's it for now. Keep an eye out. We'll be back in the uh, early in the new year and uh, perhaps a slightly revamped Alpha Bunga Bunga, bigger and better. Uh, happy holidays, everyone. See you later. Bye-bye. Oh, and maybe instead of New Year's resolutions, you should do New Year's revolutions. How about that? Oh. Uh. Uh, uh, good pretty good well you know what oh only george can do puns yeah How about that, bitches? <laughs> <laughs> okay bye